This sermon is going to be a little different because throughout the sermon series, as I've been connecting with some of you guys on a one-on-one basis, small group basis, and other discussions, one thing that has been clear is God is really convicting us with a lot of the core aspects of what is the gospel. What are some of the profound implications of the gospel? If we think about salvation, that is the most important thing in our entire lives. In 1 Thessalonians, as we have been going through passage by passage, as we've been exploring and digging into some of the different ways that these verses are laid down to us, we recognize that it has been opening up new perspectives. It has really awakened us to how thorough the gospel is and how gracious this gift of salvation is to us. But it has also raised a lot of questions. A lot of the questions I've been hearing is, If God has truly sanctified us, if our salvation is already secure, if God is going to complete the very things that he has begun, then why do I still struggle with sin? What role do I have? Should I still be concerned about sin? What role does repentance have? If I am guaranteed that God is going to bring us home, if God is going to keep us wholly blameless, full of abounding in love, then what role do I have in terms of repentance? in terms of battling sin? And actually, why do I still struggle with sin? If all these things are guaranteed and God is going to be the one who completes the good work, why is at this point in my life, or when I think back on the season, the miserable season I experienced last year, when I think about even next year, when I'm sure there's going to be future seasons where I'm going to continually rebel against God, why do those things continually happen? And it's a great question. So this last sermon, I'm going to talk about some of these things, especially in the ways that the Paul finishes the letter. And this sermon is going to be a little different. It's not going to be so much a sermon. You may think of it as, well, we'll see. I think it's going to be very edifying and it's going to be very helpful either way. So the title of the sermon is, um, well, let, let's read the passage first. Um, let's reread it. I know this is the same passage that we read last week, but we're going to focus on something different. Uh, Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We focus specifically on these two verses and one of the later verses last week. Uh, Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every, from every form of evil. Now may God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you, he is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That is how Paul finishes 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Last week, we talked about the emphasis of the preaching of the word. Are sermons merely soapboxes or TED Talks? No, obviously not, especially based on what we read. Today's sermon is going to be a little different. And the title of it is, Are We a Saint 
who continues to sin and continues to struggle with sin? Or are we a sinner who has been saved and been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Or are we both? Of course, our identity is now rooted in Christ. We are in Christ. And we talked about that over the past few weeks, over the summer, all these glorious things. But in our everyday lives, are we a saint, yet we still struggle with sin? Or are we a sinner who has been ransomed and saved by the blood of Jesus? How do these two realities coincide when we think about the gospel? Does the Bible provide us any guidelines or any principles on why, on the one hand, God has guaranteed our salvation? God has guaranteed our sanctification like we just read. He's going to keep us holy, blameless. Our whole soul, body, spirit will be holy before him. He is the one who's going to do that. But at the same time, right now, I'm struggling with sin. How do we balance these two things? And what is the proper perspective that the Bible gives us? Because if we don't have a biblical perspective, I think on the one hand, we have a very unrealistic understanding of the hope and the power of Jesus. And on the other hand, we just flout out doubt and we're skeptical and we don't trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ. So hopefully today's sermon can give us a proper biblical perspective on how the gospel is to be lived out in our everyday lives in between what Jesus has done, what he will accomplish and fulfill. How do we live in between? So let me pray for us one last time. Uh, I do want to alert us if you have any prayers or prayer requests that come up throughout the sermon or questions, then feel free to text them at, at the phone number on the screen. All those messages are anonymous. Let me pray for us one last time and then we will jump right into the word of God. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. <clears throat> when we think about 2020, <clears throat> your word has truly been a light, a lamp unto our feet, guiding every footstep. Uh, when we think about the chaos of this world and what's going on, it has made sense um, that this is the way you have been working throughout human history. And your word has also clarified to us your character of faithfulness, of love, your trustworthiness, your holiness. Your word has also clarified the ways that you are involved in our lives, how you are so intimate, you're so merciful, you're so gentle, patient, loving. And you are God who admonishes us. You lead us to repentance. You correct us in such a loving way. But your word also clarifies to us what is the gospel what is salvation? How do we live this out? Why is it that we still experience so much tension, conflict, and struggles, even though we are now in Christ? How do we live this everyday life when there is a sense of urgency, but at the same time, you are the one who's going to complete the good work? So I pray that your word would shine these things into our lives so that we can live rightly in a way that glorifies you, in a way that is in constant worship, of who you are. We thank you and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, so we're not going to focus on every single verse. Let me reread some of the verses that we will focus on so that we understand um, how this is related to the passage. So we're going to focus on verses 23 to 24. We read the entire passage, but let me reread this portion. Uh, Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of, him, uh, of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, 
your whole soul, your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you, he is faithful, he will surely do it. And if we're reading this carefully, we recognize that there is somewhat of, it seems like a contradiction, a paradox. Because on the one hand, Paul is saying, God is the one who's going to do the work of keeping you holy, keeping you blameless. He's going to make your whole spirit, your whole soul, your whole body completely holy, blameless. He's the one who's going to do it, as it emphasizes. But at the same time, Paul is saying, but you still need to do something about this. You have to abstain from every form of evil. And when we think about the New Testament especially, but throughout Scripture, there are two realities that are truly true, that seem paradoxical. On the one hand, there is urgency because we need to be mindful, vigilant, abstain, militant against the presence of sin, the presence of evil, our evil inclinations. But on the other hand, there is a sense of reassurance that God not only saved us, but He is the one saving us and He will save us. He will complete the good work. And all of our pursuit of holiness, of us being able to combat sin, all of that is based on what the Spirit does in us. He is the main actor. He is the one who is going to complete the work. But it seems paradoxical. And as I've been connecting with some of you guys, you've been sharing this with me. How do we reconcile both of these things that are emphatically highlighted and accentuated in Scripture? Um, if, if we just read this carefully, Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. There's a sense of urgency. We see this littered throughout the New Testament. But at the same time, who is the one going to do the work? Now, may the God of peace himself, he is the one who's going to sanctify us. Not only just a little bit, but he's going to sanctify us completely. That our whole spirit, our whole soul, our whole body, notice the thoroughness it will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in case we missed it, Paul ends, He who calls you, which is God, He's the one who not only calls us, but He is the one who is faithful. He will surely do it. And we're asking, then Paul, why do I have to abstain from every form of evil? If He's the one who's going to surely do it, I don't understand how all of this works out. Why do I still have to struggle with sin? In order for us to kind of get at some of these questions, there are three mini questions that we're going to really examine and explore in this sermon that I think will provide a good framework for not only questions like this, but how we live out the gospel life in our everyday lives. The three questions are, <clears throat> what is the problem of our existence? What it, and really, the, the short answer to this is sin. And we're going to examine sin. What, first of all, is sin? For some of us who have been part of us, you know the definition that we like to use. But I'm also going to unpack this a little bit more to see how sin reigns in our lives. The next question we're going to ask is, what is the solution? And this is a direct entry point into what Jesus Christ has done his death and resurrection, what he is currently doing, what the Spirit is doing in our hearts, and then what he will yet, what he has yet to do, which is his return. And how many times when we think about the gospel, we don't really think about 
what the Spirit is currently doing, nor do we think about Jesus' return. And interestingly enough, as I mentioned earlier, Advent, well, it actually technically begins this Sunday, but Advent means the arrival of Christ. And the arrival of Christ is not just Christmas when he came in as an infant, but the arrival of Christ actually comes in two phases. The first phase is Christmas where he came in as a baby, but the second phase of Advent, the second phase of his arrival is actually his return. And it's just sad that many times when we think about the arrival of Christ, we only think about the first phase when the second phase is equally important. And the third question we're going to unpack is, when does this solution take place? Because when we think about the life, death, resurrection, and the return of Christ, the whole gamut, it's a glorious thing. We are united with Christ. All these wonderful blessings that we have been unpacking throughout this sermon series and really throughout the past few years. When do these things actually take place? And when are they fully fulfilled? And I think that will help us contextualize and put into a proper perspective why we still struggle, why there is still conflict, why we are still so self-absorbed, selfish, uh, prone to burnout, prone to sin addictions, all these different things. I think it will place all that in their proper perspective. So the first question is, what is the problem? As I mentioned, the problem fundamentally of all of life, personally, societally, globally, historically, is the problem of sin. Now, what is sin? Sin is basically our tendency to distort, suppress, and reject God's character and his involvement in our lives. I know for many of us, we can probably repeat that verbatim, but what does that actually mean? We flesh that out. I've given my own personal examples, examples from scripture, but let me give you an illustration of what this looks like in case those previous examples weren't as effective. And here, this is humanity. A guy and a gal. And when we think about humanity, when we think about our existence, our life, our tendency, our natural impulse, sinful, sinfully natural impulse, is to just think of it as us. It's just us in the picture, us in the world. But the reality, the biblical reality, the spiritual reality is we were never meant to live in isolation from God. Because God is one who created us and he specifically designed us so that we are in constant connection with him. So God formed this bond, this intimate relationship with us. And I can't unpack all of this right now. Uh, I think there is a sermon link for um, a sermon on Psalm 8 where it really unpacks creation. And also, I want to refer to you the five basic food groups of the gospel sermon series from a few years back that unpacks all of this a little bit more thoroughly. But basically, God designed us so that we have an intimate relationship with him. And as we have an intimate relationship with God, all of these blessings flow because he is the source of life. If we are connected with him, then we can actually experience true life. He is a source of joy. We can experience true joy. We can experience true wisdom. We can experience true love because God is a source of all good virtues. So for us to connect with God, we need this relationship with God because otherwise we're not going to be able to experience full life, full joy, true wisdom, true love. God designed it in such a way that everything that we do must be connected with him. 
And it's a glorious, blissful thing. Irrespective of the blessings that I mentioned of life, joy, wisdom, love, so on and so forth. But just based on his own character, it is such a privilege for us to have this intimate relationship with him. But, like I mentioned, what is the problem? The problem is sin. is our tendency to distort his character, his involvement, to suppress it, or to downright reject it. And therefore, we basically sever that relationship. We did that. We said, God, thanks, but no thanks. And when we do do that, unfortunately, it's not just a religious violation. It's not just a spiritual thing. But because God is the source of all of these virtues, life, joy, wisdom, love, peace, meaningfulness, purpose, you can go down the line. We are not just severing this religious connection, but our entire being we are severing ourselves from the very source of all of these blessings. So not only are we severing our relationship with God, which that right there is very damning, but we sever ourselves from all of these blessings of life, joy, wisdom, love, meaning, peace, so on and so forth. And when we sever ourselves from that, and we basically settle for cheap imitations of love, cheap imitations of life, of joy, so on and so forth, we end up also ruining ourselves, ruining our own relationships. Every aspect of our being has therefore been tainted and devastated by sin because we have cut off our relationship with God who is the source of all of these blessings. So sin is not just something in the religious realm. It affects our entire being. In fact, theologians will call this total depravity. How devastating is sin? Sin is so devastating. I said it is fundamentally, ultimately, the problem of all of human history. But it also impacts every aspect of our existence because God is a source of all these blessings. So even our ability to think properly, our ability to manage our emotions, our like every sphere of life, not just in the religious realm, but every aspect of our lives, it has been depraved. We have been tainted by sin. So whenever we think of imperfections of our daily existence, whether it is something as silly as stubbing your toe, or whether it's something much more egregious, like having murderous thoughts and actually maybe even executing on those thoughts. All those things are symptoms of this sin. Our tendency to distort, suppress, or downright reject God's character and His involvement, which thereby severs us from all these blessings and virtues that God so desires to bestow upon us. The life of conflict struggle that we're all experiencing this is not the way God initially designed it. It was our sin that introduced all these problems, all these issues, all these complexities. So whenever we think about the promise of the gospel, and yes, it is a glorious thing, but the tendency that we have is, yes, Jesus has forgiven us of all of our sin, but we forget how devastating sin is. 
I mean, it truly is the ultimate and fundamental problem of human existence. And it depraves us totally, every aspect of our being. I think many times in the church, we completely underestimate how devastating, how profound, how powerful sin truly is. And when we think about how holy God is and how we are the ones who turned our backs against Him, God really has two responses to our sin. And the first response is He allowed sin to reign in our lives. And let me unpack this a little bit because I think this might be helpful. When we talk about how sin reigns in this world, there are three ways, at least, that sin reigns in this world that I think will be very helpful for us to understand so that we can ultimately appreciate more of what Jesus has done for us. So the first response that God has towards our sin is he allows sin to reign. He says, you want to be sinful? You want to be disconnected from me? Then fine, have at it. I'll let sin reign in your life and let's see how much you enjoy that. And sin reigns in three ways. One way that sin reigns is sin reigns almost like a judge. Now, of course, technically speaking, God is the ultimate judge. He is the judge of all judges, of course. But sin also reigns almost like a judge. In that, at the end of everybody's life, we will face some type of sentence, almost like a law court, almost like in a legal scenario. And because sin reigns, sin is the one, like a judge, who has final say of our destiny. Sin is the one that has the final sentence of where we end up. And apart from Christ, the, the sentence that sin has for us is we are going to be eternally damned. That egregious, rebellious, wicked, evil defiance that we have against God, that is worthy of damnation. And sin is our judge, so to speak. Sin reigns as the one who is able to say, you know what? Because of your sin, all of us, we are worthy of eternal damnation. That is our sentence. So in some ways, sin reigns like a judge. Now again, God is the ultimate judge. So if you want to say sin reigns as a prosecutor, sure. But I think hopefully we get the, under, uh, the sense behind this is that sin has the final say of our lives. The second way that sin reigns in this world is sin reigns not only as a judge where it dictates and determines our destination, but sin also reigns as a master. We are absolutely powerless because sin's bondage upon us is so total and is so strong that even if we try to combat sin, even if we try to struggle against sin, apart from Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we are absolutely powerless. It is like a slave or servant trying to rebel against his or her master. We can't. It's almost like we are owned by sin. We are absolutely enslaved to it. In some ways, we desire sin. In some ways, we actually, it actually gratifies us. And we don't have a desire for righteousness or for godliness, because sin reigns as our master. Now here there is some room for the thing that I think a question that somebody raised last week about common grace, where sin doesn't reign absolutely and completely. 
Otherwise, this whole world would be in fumes and chaos. God does bestow upon common grace so that certain people, even people who aren't Christian, they still have a desire for good things, virtuous living. But at the end of the day, we are powerless, ultimately, against sin, against this tendency to distort, suppress, and reject God's character and His involvement in our lives. The third way that sin reigns in this world is sin reigns as an influence. Not only does sin is a judge or sin is our master, but sin reigns as an influence so that everything that we do, every thought that we think, every word that we say, everything, our entire existence, it is influenced in such a profound way by sin. So every action, every thought, Every word, everything is influenced by our desire to distort, suppress, and reject God's character and His involvement in our lives. The influence of sin is truly profound, all-pervasive. And that was God's first response, is He allows sin to reign in this world. Specifically in these three ways. There are probably other ways, but for the purposes of this sermon, these are the three ways that I want us to kind of think about. And when we think about this, and this is basically how we've all been living our lives apart from Christ. Wow. <laughs> it's a pretty bleak, gloomy picture. And that's why we especially celebrate Advent season. And that's why every Sunday we do celebrate what Jesus has done. Because although this was God's first response to our rebellious, wicked, evil, sinful act, this wasn't God's final response. There is yet another way God responded to our sin. And that is by sending His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. As we sang about, as Raven prayed through, and as, we can, as we've been really just touching upon throughout every sermon, basically, is what has Jesus done? And when we think about sin in these three ways, I want us to think about how has Jesus responded and rectified each of these ways that sin has reigned. And Jesus, and this is the question of what is the solution, when we think about sin as judge, when we think about sin having the final sentence of our lives, what did Jesus do to that? Is he directly combated, combated that by dying for us on that cross, pouring out his blood, covering us with his precious blood so that we are now forgiven. So no longer does sin have the final say of our lives. When we stand before God and if we believe and we submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done, who he is, the promises that are laid out in scripture, then no longer are we covered in sin according to God's eyes, him being the ultimate judge. But instead, we are covered in the precious, blameless blood of Jesus Christ. We're absolutely forgiven. Sin no longer operates as a judge in our lives. Instead, we are judged by the blood of Jesus. That has been fully, irrevocably canceled by Jesus Christ by virtue specifically of his death. Jesus died for us. 
And now our final sentence is no longer based on our sin, but now our final sentence is based on what Jesus has done for us. And therefore we have verses like Romans chapter 8 verse 1, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never be condemned if we submit to Jesus Christ because sin as a judge is has absolutely no power, no relevance in our lives. We have been set free and we celebrate this. This is worthy of celebration. This is why Paul says in all circumstances always be thankful because now we are not judged by sin, but we are judged by the precious, efficacious blood that he shed so sacrificially on our behalf so that we can be absolutely forgiven. All the sins, past, present, and future, have been canceled by Jesus' blood. But not only did Jesus die, but Jesus also resurrected to empower us. So not only are we forgiven of all sins, but now we are empowered so that we can actually overcome sin. It's another added blessing that Jesus has provided for us. That when he resurrected, he is saying to all of human history, I have not only conquered the grave and death, but I have conquered sin. Not only have I forgiven your sin and wiped your slate clean, but I have given you my spirit. My spirit now dwells in you. The spirit now reigns in you. So now, Sin is no longer your master. Sin used to reign as a master. You were absolutely powerless. You couldn't do anything about it. All you could do at best is modify your behavior and try to sweep sin under the rug and try to mislead yourself into thinking that you're living a virtuous life. But at the end of the day, you're still distorting, rejecting, suppressing God's character and involvement. But I now give you my spirit so you can actually overcome sin at its root. Not just the symptoms, but at its root. So that tendency that we all had to distort, reject, suppress God's character and involvement, that can now be replaced with the tendency of worship where we can recognize God's character and his involvement in every aspect of our lives. We can submit to it and we can eventually celebrate God, you are so involved in, my, in me. I love the way you are so gentle. I love the way that you are so faithful, even though I've been laid off, even though I'm experiencing relational conflict. I love the way that you work through these struggles. I see it in the history of Israel. I see it in the history of your saints, and I see it even in my own life. The Spirit gives us the power to overcome sin. Sin no longer is our master. Praise God. Sin is no longer our judge. It is no longer our master. Our master, we are now owned. We are now enslaved to the Holy Spirit, to God. And therefore, Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians. We are no longer children of the darkness. We are no longer children of night. But now we are children of day. Now we are children of light. And it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. It's all because of His Spirit is living inside of us. Sin is no longer our judge. Sin is no longer our master. I mean, that in itself is so worthy of all of our affection that in any and every circumstance, we should always be thankful. But there is a third way that I mentioned that sin reigns. 
sin as an influence. How has Jesus rectified and reversed this? This is where things get a little complicated. Is yes, sin as judge, sin as master, that has been once and for all, for those who submit to the gospel of Jesus, gone away with. But sin as an influence is still present even if we submit to the gospel of Jesus, even if we are united with Christ, even if we walk in Christ. Sin as an influence, maybe it doesn't reign, so to speak, but its influence is still very, very profound. And like I mentioned earlier, with the idea of total depravity of sin, where it affects not just the religious sphere of our lives, but every aspect of our existence, the way we think, the way we breathe, everything. Sin still is present. That influence is still present in our lives. Theologians would call this indwelling sin. Yes, sin as a master, sin as a judge, that has been done away with. But sin still dwells. It still lingers. Its impact is still nonetheless profound. Yes, we are we should celebrate the fact that God is now our judge and we are now covered in the blood of Jesus. Yes, we should have confidence and assurance that Holy Spirit is the one dictating, determining, and, and in charge of our lives. We should celebrate these things. But at the same time, as we seek after godly living, godly desires, desiring to worship God instead of sinning against God, that's, that sin as an influence is still there and we still struggle with this and the way Jesus rectifies this is when he returns and this is why Advent we can't just think about the initial phase where Jesus came as a little infant but Advent in is biblically and theologically is two phases we need to think about his return and at his return he will conform and glorify us so that even sin as an influence, indwelling sin, even that will be forever shattered. It will just be a distant memory. It will be something when we think about our old sinful tendency, we're going to be thinking, did I actually live that life? Because this new reality of us being fully conformed and into the image of Jesus and fully glorified, therefore, we're going to think, wow, now I experience that even sin as an influence feels like a foreign, distant memory to me. It just feels like a bad dream that I had. And that will be fully consummated, fully fulfilled, fully completed when Jesus returns. But I put an asterisk mark for those of us who noted. The asterisk mark is really important because the asterisk mark means that this is actually progressive. We don't just idly wait until Jesus comes back, but it's progressive. The Holy Spirit, I mean, if you think about the Ezekiel 36 sermon about the heart surgery, Spirit is now the one reigning in our hearts, in our lives. And therefore, every godly desire that we have Every desire that we want to worship, again, the definition of worship, our tendency or our desire 
to submit to, recognize, and, and celebrate God's character and his involvement. Every time we do that, that is the Spirit working in us, wooing us, motivating us, compelling us to have such impulses. So even your desire to worship this Sunday of service, it's not because of you. It's not because you grew up in the church. It's not because of habit, but it's because the Holy Spirit is willing you, motivating you. Because left to ourselves, again, when we think about total depravity, we have no inclination to do good. Now, this is where, in Scripture, there is that tension, that paradox, where, on the one hand, we celebrate all that Jesus has done, what He is currently doing, and what He has yet to do. And because God is so faithful to His promise, it's, it's so secure, it's so guaranteed. We celebrate, we have confidence, we have assurance. But on the other hand, there is a sense of urgency where, where Scripture is urging us to abstain from every form of evil, reminding us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion and therefore we need to flee. We need to be vigilant. We need to be militant against him. We need to put to death the evil deeds, our sinful inclinations, They're, both realities are present. And both realities do not logically contradict each other. And I think that leads us to the next question that I mentioned earlier. Is how do we live like this? Because not only does scripture describe this tension, but as I've been walking with some of you guys, and even as I think about my own life, we all experience this tension. And the problem, I think, especially in our community, is whenever we experience this tension, this conflict, this struggle of indwelling sin or sin's influence in our lives, how it's still profound, we misinterpret it. We think, oh, here I go again. You know what? This Christianity thing, this gospel thing, I don't know. I don't think it's for me. And we focus too much on the picture and not the painting, so to speak. Or we think, you know what, God, if, if you are who you say you are, and if you did all the things that you said you did in Scripture, then why is it that my life is still in this type of chaos? I don't, I don't know if I can trust God anymore. I don't know if I can really trust His Word. But do you realize that that is such a distortion of not only God's character and His involvement, but that's not the way Scripture has laid out the implications of the Gospel. Scripture, if you read it carefully, it presents both things. And whenever we experience that type of struggle, our tendency is to misinterpret it and to place our eyes and our focus on everything else other than Jesus Christ. But instead, hopefully this sermon and me breaking this down methodically, hopefully this gives us a better, more biblically informed framework that even though we still struggle with sin, even though indwelling sin is still a very serious thing in our lives, that's not because God is not faithful to His promise, but it's because this is the spiritual reality that we live in that has been described in Scripture. Instead of turning away from God and looking inwardly or looking externally, we need to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, even though I still struggle with the influence of sin, thank you 
that sin is not my final judge. Thank you that sin is no longer my master. Thank you that your spirit is still working in me so that progressively this influence of sin is going to be done away with. And one day you will return and you will complete the good work where even sin as an influence will be a distant memory in my life. Thank you. Praise you. In the meanwhile, I repent. In the meanwhile, I need more of you. Please fill me. Now, when do all of these blessings take place? It's a little, it's not complicated. I've mentioned it, I hinted at it, but let me present it as a chart because I think this will be a little bit more memorable for us. Is So when does this take place? On the one hand, it has already happened. Jesus has already accomplished the good work. Jesus will do these things in his return. It's almost like it has already happened. And that's why scripture presents it that way. But on the other hand, scripture also presents it has not yet happened fully. Scripture also says that. And that's why theologians will call this the tension, the reality of already, not yet. Already, Jesus has done everything. And because he is so faithful to his word, all the future blessings are as if they happened already. But not yet. Are we able to fully live out and experience and enjoy these blessings? We get traces of it, but not fully yet. And this diagram I think will be helpful. Let me first present a diagram that I think is the way most of us think about living the gospel life. And it is unfortunately not biblical. And and even more unfortunate is I think it leads to a lot of misunderstandings on how God is actually trying to work in your life. We have a very shallow, superficial, unrealistic understanding of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this. I think many of us, when we think about the gospel, we think about our old life in this blue arrow. Our old life, sinful tendencies, reigning as our judge, as our master. There's no hope. But then Christ intervened. Praise God. Jesus' death and his resurrection. And because I was saved, because I did my confession, because I've been baptized, now I live in this new life. Old life, new life, happily ever after, end of story. But wait a minute. In this new life, I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with the indwelling of sin, the influence of sin. You know what? Maybe this Jesus Christ thing is not real. Or maybe I'm not actually saved. Or maybe all these other poisonous thoughts that Satan plants in our minds. Because we have such a shallow understanding. This is not the way scripture really lays out the gospel reality. If you read scripture a little bit more carefully, it's this already not yet tension. And let me modify this a little bit. Is Yes, we do have this old life where sin has reigned as our judge, as our master, and profound influence in every aspect of our lives. But praise God, Jesus Christ intervened. He arrived. But his arrival is not just him coming, being born in a manger, so that he can live 30-some years to really die on a cross and to resurrect on our behalf. Yes, those things are true, but his arrival is two phases. The cross 
and also his return. That is Advent. That is Jesus' arrival. It's two phases. And this actually makes much more sense of our lives. Because although his death and resurrection has given us new life, for sure, now sin is no longer our judge or our master. Now we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Praise God, there is now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one dwelling, dictating, governing our lives. So sin is no longer our master either. It's a glorious thing. It's a new life. And the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned earlier, progressively enables us to not only overcome sin, but to combat the influence of sin that is really entangled in every aspect of our being. Glorious thing. It's a new life. But it's not the full, consummated, completed life. As Paul mentions throughout Thessalonians and really throughout Scripture, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will keep us blameless, our whole body, our whole soul, our whole spirit. He will surely do it. What does that mean? Is that means the consummated life where all the blessings are in full effect, so to speak. Where not only is sin eradicated as a judge and a master, but even indwelling sin, sin as an influence, is completely destroyed. But that doesn't happen until the return of Christ. And it's no coincidence that even in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the return of Christ a lot. But then what happens in the in-between? And that is this little box, as you can see. That is the already, not yet. That is the era of life that all of us are living in. In between the two advents, so to speak, two phases of advents, between Jesus' initial coming and his second coming. We live in that reality, in that era. And in this era, yes, we celebrate because sin is no longer our master or our judge, but sin is still having a profound influence in our lives. Yes, we celebrate that we're covered in the blood of Jesus. Spirit is the one who reigns in our hearts. But indwelling sin is still a nasty, terrible, terrible evil. And that is why Scripture talks about both the urgency and the reassurance. And that is why our life is marked by that tension where we feel the reassurance of everything that Jesus has done, everything that he will do. But at the same time, we still experience so much conflict, so much struggle. When we think about the already, not yet, it's a very difficult period to live in. There's a lot of confusion. And one of my favorite verses that kind of captures this is 1 Peter chapter 5. What does it mean to live in this tension? Peter says, Your adversary, Satan, he roars around like a prowling lion looking for prey to devour. That is a reality that we live in. Satan knows he lost. Satan knows that he can no longer judge us. Satan knows that he can no longer master us. 
but he is hell-bent on making sure that the influence of sin, indwelling sin, will confuse us, destroy us even, do whatever it takes to use indwelling sin, the influence of sin, so that we get our eyes off of Jesus and get discouraged, distracted, preoccupied. Maybe it's not in the form of discouragement. Maybe it's in the form of preoccupation, of being so busy with work, or being so preoccupied with other aspirations in life. Satan would do whatever it takes. He is like a roaring lion seeking for a prey to destroy. Now, thankfully, that cannot happen to those who are in Christ, but he will do whatever it takes to make our lives miserable. I mean, there are a lot of good metaphors for this. When we think about even wars, for instance, I think a war metaphor is very suitable because Paul uses a lot of militant language to talk about the presence of sin. If you think about war, it consists of many battles. And there are certain battles that are lost, certain battles that are won. But ultimately, even if you win a war, you're likely to lose some battles. Even if you win every single battle, you're likely to experience casualties, are you not? And there are countless examples, even in human history, where there are instances where the war has been decided, but there are things like last stand battles or whatever. There are battles that even though the war has, the, the decision of the war has already been made, there are still battles that need to be fought. And just because the war is over, been decided, it doesn't negate the fact that those battles are intense and that there are casualties. Similarly for us is, yes, the war has been decided. The outcome is in Christ. That is a cause of celebration. But really this not yet, already not yet period is almost like a battle. There is a lot of tension. There is a lot of conflict. But thankfully, not only is the war decided, but this period, in this grand scheme of things, and this is why having an eternal perspective is so important, this period is so temporary, is so transient. Yeah, it is so transient. And it puts everything into perspective. Not only our victories, so that we're not so caught up with our victories, where they lead to idolatry, but even our struggles, where even in our lowest point, there is hope, because we know that Christ, the victory is in the hands of Christ. Um, <clears throat> like I mentioned, uh, this sermon is a little different. I know I use a lot of diagrams, so hopefully this didn't seem like just like some type of lecture. Hopefully you see the practical relevance of all of this. And in order for me to kind of make the practical relevance a little bit clearer and more explicit, um, here are some ways, some key points that I hope can turn into ways that we can respond, whether it's a response of prayer, praise and thanksgiving or a response of repentance. 
And the first is sin is no longer our judge or master because of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is something that we continually need to celebrate. Like I mentioned earlier, this is why Paul says, really, give thanks in all circumstances. When we think about the total depravity of sin and just how devastating it is and how Jesus canceled all that, wow, it's just so freeing. So much joy. We should celebrate that. Another thing is, but sin's influence, indwelling sin, is still devastating and pervasive. Every aspect of our existence, every aspect of our being, sin's influence is still present. And we need to be vigilant. We need to abstain from every form of evil. We need to be militant. And this is why I think accountability partners and those type of measures are are very biblical. But the reason why I sound like I'm a little against those things is because we have the tendency to not put that in its proper perspective. But within this proper perspective, yes, accountability partners, doing whatever, taking whatever measure you can to honor what Christ has done and to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart, of course, we should make full, take full advantage of that. We should be vigilant. And maybe this is an area where we cry out, Holy Spirit, I need more of you. Holy Spirit, may you increase and may I decrease. Holy Spirit, reign so that even my, the influence of sin, I can progressively experience more and more victories. Or maybe this is a cause of repentance. Saying, God, you're right. Sin's influence has its sway on me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I have not been honoring the new life that Christ has been given to me. Please help me to focus on you. The gift of repentance. And this is why repentance must be a mentality, a posture that we have until we see Jesus face to face. Because if the reality of sin's influence is present and sin's influence is all pervasive and interacting with every aspect of our lives, then certainly repentance must be a lifestyle, right? It's just, and that's why Paul continues to emphasize to have a repentant heart. This is why towards the end of Paul's life, he says, I am the foremost of all, foremost of all sinners. And it's a gift because left to ourselves, we wouldn't be numb to our sin first of all, but it's also a gift because when we repent, that is, the mo- that is where God meaningfully reminds us that yes, we still struggle with sin as an influence, but sin as a judge and a master that has been eradicated. Praise God. And the same person who eradicated that is the same person who is working in us so that even sin as an influence will be fully eradicated. So it's a gift because it fills us with true joy, true hope that is grounded in the Word of God. And lastly, I want to just level set with all of you. Tension, conflict, struggle, that, that is the way, I mean, we're gonna, our lives are going to be filled with joy, peace, happiness, all these different things because we are in Christ. But because of sin's influence, tension, conflict, struggle, We cannot get away with that until the complete consummation. But until then, 
Don't misinterpret those tensions as God is not faithful. Don't distort God's character and his involvement because you're experiencing these tensions. But instead, recognize that this is the reality that we live in and respond in repentance instead. Turn your eyes, not away from Jesus, but turn your eyes to Jesus as we are caught in this already not yet. And then look forward to the, one, to the day when Jesus will return, when the full advent will be complete. Where our whole soul, our whole spirit, our whole body will be blameless, abounding in love, sanctified. He will surely do it. God of peace himself. He is faithful. Praise God. Uh, At this time, I'm just going to give us an opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit may be placing in our hearts. Um, Maybe some of these key points can be helpful to specify some of the ways that the Spirit is compelling us to pray. Um, I also want to turn our attention to the phone number if you have any questions, prayer requests, prayers. Um, Also, offering is another way that we want to respond to the Holy Spirit uh, via the link. Uh, So I just want to give us an opportunity to just uh, respond to what the Spirit is placing on our hearts.